Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 212. On today's show, we talk about Ramses's revered rams, club-wielding cavemen, and paleothermometry in Alaska. Thanks for those notes. I appreciate that. <laughs> Let's dig a little deeper into why <laughs> Rachel can't say Ramses, <laughs> something like that. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Pretty good. Still here in Mexico. Yep. We, <laughs> we were supposed to be gone. And then the weather got nice, so we stayed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the beauty of having a flexible lifestyle. Yeah. Is we just need to find somewhere to work during the week. Mm-hmm. And if where we're going is not a whole lot different than where we're at or is a little bit worse, then we may as well stay where we're at. Yeah, very yeah. true. And we, not to talk too much about like how we do the RV lifestyle thing, but we do have this like campground membership thing. That makes it really easy to just cancel with no consequences, too, which mm-hmm. I feel bad about that when we have a booking somewhere that's like kind of crowded and kind of hard to get a spot at. And then we just like cancel it the day before. But yeah, we also paid a pretty big fee to have this campground me- membership. So it works well for us to have that and then change of plans with no financial repercussions. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't really much need to go up there. It'd be nice yeah. to get some mail because it's a good address. But we can't store anything there, which would no. be nice if we could store stuff there. But you know where you can store stuff? <laughs> the Temple of Ramses II. <laughs> if you've got like over 2,000 ram's heads, <laughs> that's where you're going to put them. I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't see that coming. Sometimes you just like shock me with your weird transitions. <laughs> All right. So oh, this article man. is called... Over 2,000 ram skulls discovered in Egypt's Temple of Ramses II, a new mystery for archaeologists. And this is from CBS News. So we're talking about Abydos, Egypt here, and that's about seven miles west of the Nile and about 270 miles south of Cairo. So quite a ways away from the uh, the big old pyramids you're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of stuff down the Nile, so yeah, it's not like, like it's isolated. It's just like site after site after site after site, yeah. like all the way up and down the Nile, basically, right? Right, yeah. right. So there's lots of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, archaeologists from the New York University Institute for the Study of the Ancient World found a whole bunch of skulls mm-hmm. in a storeroom, mm-hmm. right? The skulls were left, though, about a thousand years after Ramses II's rule. And not all at once. We'll get to that in a second. Hmm. Um, but this really just shows his impact on the people. Because this was like his temple, these yeah. ram skulls, and Ramses is associated with ram skulls. Right, right. You know, right. And, and that's why we know that it was like an offering and not just like, hey, we don't care about him anymore, but there's a room we can store all this crap in. You know. So, like, dating-wise, because there's 2,000 of these ram's heads found in this temple, Mm-hmm. Do they know like if they were all deposited at the same time? No. So if it, if it were different times, or I wonder right. if it was like a constant thing for like a the thousand years after he died, just people continued to 
worship him almost, almost like a deity or a god or something like that. It's kind of crazy to think about that. So here's the thing. We're not sure how the ram's skulls were accumulated, Uh um, but we do know that they were more than likely actually put in this location all at the same time. Right. So when I spoke earlier and I said, you know, they know that it wasn't all... I guess at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was here, actually. Mm-hmm. This is a storeroom, and it looks like just, you know, evidence that they found states that... They uh, put them all here. They put them all here. Like, they were somewhere else, and then they were now stored here. Yeah. Maybe they were in another room in the temple. Yeah. Maybe they were in another temple entirely. Who yeah. Knows? Maybe but, they gathered them up from a bunch of different temples right. to, like, protect them or something like that. I guess there could be a lot of reasons why they would have done it. Yeah. Crazy thing is they were just digging and and they you know they knew they were in a temple and they were finding stuff. Yeah. And they found a few fragments of ram skulls, which I'm kind of like, where did those fragments come from? That's mm-hmm. kind of interesting because these are all mostly intact. But then they just kept digging and then found an entire area filled with them. It just was like one after the other. Yeah. The pictures of them are really cool. So like definitely head over to the article link to see it. Mm-hmm. But they laid all the skulls out on like tarps basically. Yeah. And they just they take up this gigantic area. It's it's really cool to see. Yeah, they think most of these were laid down during what's called the Ptolemaic period, which is, you know, after Ramses's rule. And Ramses's rule was sixty years long. Ramses the mm, second. Yeah. Sixty years long. It's a long time. And yeah. it ended around two thirteen BC. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's crazy. So I guess it is like this this ruler who was revered, basically, yeah. long running ruler. And then people just sort of kept making offerings to him and his temple. Well, and Egyptian pharaohs were seen as gods. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, he he ruled for so long. I mean, some people lived and died during his rule. Right. 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 So, you know, ruling for 60 years. I mean, that puts him into at least, I don't know when, how old he was when he became pharaoh, but, you know, Egyptians can become pharaoh pretty young, depending mm-hmm. on the family dynasty. But So he was probably at least 70 or 80, yeah. you know, give or take, but, yep. which is pretty old for back then. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a massive impact. Some of the ram's heads were still mummified. The Egyptians loved mummifying things. They do. Well, yeah, it clearly was a very great preservation technique, and, yeah. and they knew it, and they, they used it a lot. They found other objects, including papyrus, just like sheets of papyrus. Uh-huh. Um, probably was stuff written on them, but it didn't mention it in the article. Or it could have been degraded away, like if the ink had yeah, decomposed. Yeah, it, yeah, could have. They might be able to use different techniques to see if there was anything written there. If they yeah. appear blank to the eye, they might not be. Right. Yeah. Other letter, Other leather artifacts were found, as well as statues. So all mm-hmm. kinds of things in there. All this was about six feet under the current surface of the desert, which, mm-hmm. oh, man, I don't know how you just find this stuff because, <laughs> you know, if there's things in the area, I mean, they do just like do exploratory digging and things, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not even sure, given the sandy soil and how dry it is, what kind of subsurface geophysical methods they could possibly use. Yeah. You know, I'm really I'm not really sure what would work there. I mean, they're probably just looking at what they can see from the surface, what's left of structures, mm-hmm. what walls, that sort of thing, and then just like an educated guess. And sometimes you get lucky and you, you find things. Yeah. So this storeroom was not just any room in the temple. It was actually inside the revered domain of the temple, Mm. they said. So that would probably be why they were excavating there. Right, right. Yeah, they were hoping to find something. Yeah, for sure. Just not like over 2,000 Yeah, who thought it would be 2,000 skulls? (laughs) So crazy. I know. Also, some of the pictures in the article here, you can see this, but they also uncovered a large mud brick structure with 16 foot thick walls that dates back to about 4,200 years. Well before all this. That is so that is so fortified and big. Yeah. Like, why that well, thick? We'll get to it. Um, yeah. But that's part of the Sixth Dynasty. And one thing I love hearing about when they say the Sixth Dynasty, I mean, 4,200 years 
And the Egyptians already were like having dynasties. Yeah. Right. They're just like, whatever, we're doing this. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, They think the structure was probably about 30 feet high and built obviously for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think they can extrapolate height because these mud brick structures, they were so heavy. You know, if if you're making a big, you would only make a base that big if you were tapering it at a predictable angle. Yeah. And they can either see part of the angle. They didn't say this in the article, of course, but they can either see part of the angle and then extrapolate how high it would be Mm -hmm. based on what they know or... They have experience, mm-hmm. right? There's other things that have been found. So, mm-hmm. but apparently, it's thought historically that there was a wall around ancient Abydos, but it's never been found. And they're oh, like, well, maybe this could be part of that it wall. Could be, and that would explain how thick it is, because you yeah. would certainly want it to be for protection purposes. So, I guess right. that makes sense that it was it was possibly part of a, a wall. I know the thing I'm wondering is if that, is that all they've uncovered, or why wouldn't it just continue on? You know, even if it's the foundations of it, you mm-hmm. think you could just follow that out. Yeah, you know? but past societies might have knocked it down. They might have yeah. scavenged the bricks to use for right. other buildings. You know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. So yeah. maybe a piece of the land actually fell away, depending mm-hmm. on how steep it is, what kind of hill you're talking about, you know, yeah. anything like that. In addition to the ram skulls and the artifacts, they also found other mummified animal remains. Mm-hmm. And those include dogs, goats, cows, and gazelles. Okay. They're just like, hey. If it lives, it gets mummified. Yeah, I mean, and they were probably for like sacrifice purposes, right? So uh, either that or offerings. Yeah, yeah, offering yeah, well, sacrifice. sacrificial offerings. Yeah, I yeah, guess. that kind of thing. Well, sometimes, and again, speaking without knowledge here, right, but, right. You know, the Egyptians really believed in an afterlife, and sometimes, of course, the animals would have been sacrificed, but not just to kill them, but sometimes to literally provide food for for the maybe Ramses, whoever the it is. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, totally. apparently, wherever the Egyptian afterlife is, they've got no food, no money, <laughs> uh, no supplies to make chariots they like literally have nothing up there. they got to take all that with them yeah apparently so <laughs> yeah they also found and this i thought was super cool a mm-hmm. small bronze bell that still has the clapper the little bell part mm-hmm. inside and they cleaned it up and it works like the day it was made that's so cool yeah so they actually rang it that's yeah that's really yeah neat. they said it was probably used to mark a herd that was the phrase that was used in the article i think that might mean like a you know, it's got symbols on it. Oh, but yeah. But it also could have been around like a cow's neck mm-hmm. uh, to find them. You or know? a sheep. Or a sheep. You yeah, because they are ram's heads. Yeah. Well, yeah. They didn't even have cows, did they? No. I don't think. Probably yeah. around sheep or goat, goats yeah, or something yeah, like that. Something, like something that. that one of their herd animals that they would have had. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Well, that's really neat. Yeah. I mean, they had a, they had a bunch of those animals. Uh, of course, they had domesticated things. And I just wonder for these offerings... How do you think they uh, they killed them? Do you think they used like knives or maybe clubs? Do you think they used I, clubs? I don't know. Maybe we should explore clubs. I don't know. Let's find out if our ancestors really did wield clubs like cavemen on the other side of the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 212 of The Archaeology Show. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about clubs. <laughs> so the author of this next article, he used to play this video game called Prehistoric. With a K at the end. Did you ever play it? I, I mean, you're you were teenager of the 90s, you know, right? I don't think so. Yeah, I yeah. never did either. Yeah, I don't think so. His name is, I'm going to get this wrong because it's all consonants. Uh, Vaclav Hrnkir. Hrnkir. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, look up the article. We have not only the article that we found this on Sapiens, but also the original journal article. Yeah. So if you want to find that, check it out. But yeah. He, and sign up for Sapiens if you haven't. Yeah, because they have the best like archaeology newsletter. It's really interesting. That's how we found this article. And if you're listening to this in real time, which means April of 2023, they have another season of their podcast coming out. Oh, nice! This month, I believe. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I just saw that in their newsletter. So go check it out. Yep. Anyway, the author was, as I said, inspired by playing the game Prehistoric in the 90s, and <laughs> it was. He said it was a side scroller similar to Super Mario. But the main character was a shaggy caveman with a leopard print loincloth and a hefty wooden club. Yeah, I saw they they have a picture of it in the article and it really is just like that Super Mario Brothers feel, but but a caveman. Yeah. And he's, you know, clubbing dinosaurs over the head because that's what <laughs> cavemen did, apparently. Right. Or so, that's what popular culture would say that cavemen did anyway. <laughs> so he was able to quickly rule out that cavemen probably didn't hit dinosaurs over the head with a club. Right. Yeah. That whole dinosaur-human overlapping thing. Sure. But, like, it's it's consistent in popular culture and just in, like, real life, too. Mm-hmm. Like, how many times do people find out that we're archaeologists and then they immediately start talking about dinosaur bones? Oh, yeah. It happens yeah. all the time. And I get it. I get why. Because paleontology and archaeology Archaeology, if you're not educated in those fields, they sort of seem like the same thing. And there are a lot of crossover techniques. A lot of people, unless you're a fan of Friends, probably haven't heard the word paleontology before. Mm-hmm. And they often just associate digging for the past yeah. with archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is a more, I think, a more common word, especially because of Indiana Jones, stuff yeah. like that. But to be clear yeah. here, dinosaurs many, many millions, 65 million years ago mm-hmm. or so, more or more, and then humans are much more recent than that. As we just talked about on our recent paleoanthropology series, you know, yep. we're talking a few million years for right. humans. So definitely did not overlap. Anyway, sure. go on. Yes. So <laughs> he set out to basically dispel some of the commonly held beliefs that people have about what we would call cavemen, mm-hmm. right? First yep. off, caveman. Yeah. That's not accurate. No. People did do things in caves. Mm-hmm. They sheltered in caves. They buried their dead in caves sometimes. Yep. They buried other stuff in caves. They died in caves. They, they, they ate in caves. They drew art in caves. Right. They drew know? art in caves, but they certainly yeah. didn't live in the caves. Not, I mean, they, not full could, time. No, they could have sheltered there for extended periods of time. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're spending a lot of your time outside. You're spending a lot of time doing other things. And like I said, of course, there could be some shelter. But there just isn't enough caves to say that all humans of a certain time period lived in caves. Yeah. Right. There just isn't enough of them. Yeah. So it's it's not even accurate to say that people primarily dwelled in caves. Caves were just a one of their habitats and, yeah. and one of their tools for success for living. Right. Yeah. So he wanted to know, given all that information, no dinosaurs, no caves, except for sometimes, <laughs> was the club, the wooden club, a part of our ancestors' tool set or just a myth? Yeah. And honestly, the article here from Sapiens, and I don't know if this is, if he contributed this or if Sapiens was like, we need... Uh, we need something different up here. Oh, actually, there's a Flickr attribution on the article for a John Flinchbaugh. <laughs> but it's a picture of 
Like a Lego caveman Lego, holding a club? Yeah. Standing on like a field of carpet. Well, I mean, that image, right? The Fred Flintstone image, the yeah. the leopard print loincloth and the the club, like in the, the shagginess. That's really, it's really gotten into popular mm-hmm. culture. It's what you see it everywhere and even Legos. So, and yeah. is it bad? I don't know if it's a, a bad myth necessarily. It's just not quite right. And so it's good to take a look at what is right and what is wrong, which is what he's doing here, specific to the club. So it's really cool what he does here. So Yeah, for sure. It's difficult to find evidence of this in the archaeological record. And by this, I mean clubs, uh-huh. because wood does not maintain itself very well nope. in soil. It's the yeah. missing majority, right? We've talked yeah. about this before. There's so many things that just decompose and disappear over time and and wood is for sure part of that right for a wooden artifact to survive beyond around a thousand years or so and this is a very rough number Mm -hmm. it would have to be in an extremely dry place or have been charred to a crisp in a fire Mm -hmm. because now it's basically carbon but not like burned away completely so that there's nothing left right you know it has to be like that in between place yeah there's like some (laughs) evidence that this wood was modified somehow yeah yeah and yet it's still burned to a crisp right right? (laughs) or be waterlogged completely that's the funny thing is it's got to be either either ridiculous dry or fully watered yep <laughs> anything in the middle and it's going to decompose yep yeah so you find wooden artifacts in like bogs and things like that mm-hmm. and and also in really dry uh desert environments sometimes you know mm-hmm. depending on where and you're in at. caves too because caves yeah. tend to be like dry be. and cool and they're really really great areas for preservation so you mm-hmm. can kind of see how the caveman club wielding right. image gets created so. Yeah, and the time period we're talking about here, generally, I mean, as far as you know, wearing these clothes and doing these kinds of different things, clothes is a very loose term. Mm-hmm. And even when you're talking about caveman, people are are generally talking about what we would call the Neolithic, but what the rest of the world calls the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. But it's called the Stone Age because that's what because that's persists what we find. in the archaeological record. Yeah, we find massive evidence of them using you know different stone tools, creating different things from axes to mm-hmm. spear tips to all kinds of different things. And there's a reason we don't have a wood edge because we wouldn't be able to define it. Yeah, like it, yeah. there's just not enough. The 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 artifacts found in bogs and caves and super dry environments there just aren't enough of them to assign an age to it. Basically. <laughs> and the other thing is, spoiler alert: the wood age would probably be a couple of million years. It probably would. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Wood is easy to use, right? Yeah. It's an easy to use material, and it's easy to find. So right. yeah. And you don't often need to modify it to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, the oldest possible club that the author found while searching through many, many reports, this was a massive study, mm-hmm. it was found at a waterlogged site at Colombo Falls in Zambia, and it's thought to be at least 300,000 years old, Yeah, that's which is really cool. crazy old. Yeah. There's quite a few more examples from moorland areas like moors, lakeshores, mm-hmm. and riverside settlements where, you know, it's more waterlogged mm-hmm. uh, in Europe that date to around 6500 BCE to 1000 BCE. That's a pretty big range of time then. Yeah. So obviously many different groups of humans over time were right. using some sort of club basically yeah yeah and that dates those time frames are generally what's called the mesolithic leading into what's known as the bronze age Mm -hmm. and and again when we change these ages and their names it doesn't mean we stopped using the other things it just means we had a a higher prevalence of you know the new thing Mm -hmm. right yeah but then again that's what's interesting about wood is that there's no reason to think why it didn't carry through all those ages yeah like you would put spear points onto wood shafts for throwing or whatever mm-hmm. you so that would be stone age and then you would also put metal ones yeah. onto onto wood so your bronze age right yeah. like wood was everywhere through all those time periods yeah for sure 
knowing what these were actually used for, though, is extremely difficult. I mean, just by knowing its shape. I mean, we kind of think of them as weapons because what else are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. But they weren't necessarily used solely as weapons. That being said, depictions on rock art and head wounds on excavated skulls indicate that some of these were actually used as weapons. So is there like rock art with like a guy like running around <laughs> yeah. with a club over his head, like chasing I mean, like probably some, you know, another guy. <laughs> right. Well, experimental yeah. archaeologists have tried duplicating this and showed that, you know, this is likely true. Yeah. We actually talked about an article a few weeks ago. Well, probably a month or two ago. Uh-huh. That was one of those had to do with experimental archaeology, looking at these different shaped stone tips. Now, it mm-hmm. wasn't clubs it wasn't. necessarily, yeah. but they were bashing them into replica skulls yeah. to see what damage it was. But experimental archaeologists have also done this with just, you know, potential wooden clubs. With clubs, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it sounds kind of morbid to like look at how a skull would break apart right. when you smash it with some kind of weapon. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's a really important piece of information to know when you're looking at a skull. You have no idea how the person died except that it was some sort of trauma to their head. Mm-hmm. It's really good for you know, experimental archaeologists to get in there and figure out what kind of weapon made those, those marks. And I guess clubs were one of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) potentially. Another reason why these could have been used as weapons is there are two 3000 year old clubs that were found at a bronze age battlefield in Northern Germany. One was actually shaped like a baseball bat and the other one was more like a mallet Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were almost certainly used in battle given their association with the other artifacts in the battlefield itself. Yeah. You can't really dispute that, right? Right. On a battlefield, probably a weapon. You can't say a hundred percent. No, true. But, and they, you know, could have been used for a number of things, but Mm -hmm. other things they actually could have been used for though, just thinking logically Mm -hmm. hunting, you can bash, you know, animals over the head with these. If you Mm -hmm. take it down with a, with an arrow or a spear or something like that, and you've got to finish it off. I mean, I remember as a kid when we'd go fishing, my dad legit had like a small, what looked like a small baseball bat and it was called a fish bat. Oh, really? Because you bring the fish on board and if you can't, like usually you just like break its neck if it's a trout, but if it's not dying, you can actually, you know, put the head on the edge of the boat and then just hit it with the fish oh bat. Oh my God, that's so <laughs> violent. I know. Oh man. Yeah, but that's what you do. Yeah. So, well. Anyway, so hunting, uh, hammering, pounding food playing or or ritual i mean a lot of things that could have been used for right yeah totally yeah now here's where it gets interesting modern chimpanzees bonobos gorillas and orangutans have all been observed throwing branches and beating other animals with sticks mm-hmm. so they just pick up something and use it as a weapon yeah. or a deterrent or you know they're throwing stuff from trees or throwing stuff at other other animals mm-hmm. and that's tool use just because they didn't make it doesn't mean they weren't yeah. expediently using a tool, right? right? So it stands to reason that our ancestors did the same. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't. Yeah. Um, if something's laying on the ground and you got to defend yourself, well, you're going to pick it up and hit somebody with it. Yeah. And I think from yeah. our, our last few episodes, we know that expedient tools like that would certainly have been used by, yeah. by our ancestors for sure. I mean, you're going to use what's around you and what's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would naturally evolve into well this worked really well but the the end of it's too big on this mm-hmm. stick so i'm just gonna like try to shave some of this off yeah and while while i'm doing that i may as well shape the end there to to make it a little you know more easier effective. to hold or something yeah, like that for yeah whatever i want to do right yep. we still don't necessarily know why they would use a wooden club if something like a spear or an arrow were available but it's more than likely that that was used in close contact, yeah. right? Like I said, you take an animal down from a distance, but they're not quite dead. Not quite dead. <laughs> Here comes Rachel with the with the Monty Python quote. Yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, but to get some of these answers, the author looked at modern groups of hunter gatherers. Right. Yeah, people who had until recently 
you know, been undiscovered. Yeah. Uh, and re- recently it's more like the last hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Like 100, yeah. 150 years. Yeah. But there were a lot of people living as hunter-gatherers. And crazy thing is, I, I don't even know, I need to see the source for this statistic, but it's, it's written in the article that it's estimated that about 5 million people today in 2023 live as hunter-gatherers. I read that to mean in the last 150 years. It says today. It says today. I mean... So he looked at studies over the 19th and 20th centuries for sure, mm-hmm. right? That's not a dispute. But today, living as hunter-gatherers, and all that means is it doesn't mean they're like Native American groups trucking around with teepees or something or, you know, whatever they're doing. It means they're getting most of their food from foraged wild plants and animals. Mm -hmm. And they may still live in a village. They probably still have, you know, some kind of clothing they've, they've trading for or whatever they're doing, but they're not having jobs and, and going out there and, you know, buying food. Mm -hmm. They're foraging for food. They're foraging for plants and they're living that way. Again, it doesn't mean savage. It doesn't mean somebody who's, you know, completely wild and primitive. It just means they get most of their stuff from, you know, forage plants and animals, like a lot of people who live in Portland, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> they probably forage for oh a lot of God. things up there because, you know, it's Portland. <laughs> right. Okay. So here's what the article actually says. So it is a little bit open for interpretation. The And I quote, today and for the past few hundred years, it's estimated that around 5 million people worldwide have been living as hunter-gatherers. So consistently about that. So number. yeah, I guess that means consistently. Yeah. yeah. Either way, if it's over a hundred thousand, that surprises me. Yeah, it is right? surprising. I mean, it surprises me if it's over like ten thousand. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Totally. Yeah. But anyway, like I mentioned, the author looked at ethnographies of hunter-gatherer societies written in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. And then mm-hmm. an ethnography is essentially usually a cultural anthropologist, but they probably didn't call themselves that 150 years ago, mm-hmm. but a cultural anthropologist going out and often living with a society or living adjacent to a society, befriending them and then writing about them. Mm-hmm. You basically write, you know, an ethnography would be literally everything about that society that you can possibly get, mm-hmm. you know, even from writing down its language sometimes. It is usually through the eyes of an outsider. So sure. when you're looking at ones from the 1800s, you kind of have to take that into account. I think modern researchers today are, are much less biased than mm-hmm. early accounts would be, but it's still a really great way to sort of get an idea of how our earlier yeah. hunter-gatherer ancestors would have been living and how they would have, you know, yeah. made this work made it made that lifestyle work yeah he did note that some of them weren't crazy accurate yeah and they had everything from like romanticized portrayals of the people like living mm-hmm. this idyllic lifestyle yeah and all the way to calling them primitive yeah you know yeah. and just like downplaying it yeah, so people sure. definitely left their opinions in and didn't really understand science that much yeah <laughs> when definitely. it comes to like anthropology yeah the older ones yeah. for sure yeah <laughs> but again for some club use was observed and documented mm-hmm. it's hard to romanticize or you know yeah that. so it the reasons and the why and the who was doing it, taking that out of it. Yes, mm-hmm. they did use clubs. So yeah. that, you know, is a piece of information we can use here. Yeah. And they said that they were used relatively sparingly for the reasons we've already talked about, you know, for a particular prey species, like, you know, maybe a rabbit or something like that. Maybe a club is something you could just like sneak up on it and mm-hmm. bash it over the head mm-hmm. or to actually kill animals that were already captured or wounded. Right. Like we said. Right, yeah. right. The San in Southern Africa used 50 to 100 centimeter long clubs to hunt porcupines. Screw that. I'm using a freaking arrow for a porcupine. <laughs> ant bears. I don't even know what an ant bear is. I don't know. And other small animals. Like an anteater, maybe? I guess. I don't But ant bear? I don't know. I've not yeah. heard it called that, but yeah. 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 100 centimeters is, you know, give or take three feet. Right. For mm-hmm. those people that don't know. Mm-hmm. The Eastern Siberian Nivix 
use them as to club seals and sea lions. Okay. So sure. when you hear about people clubbing seals, it mm-hmm. actually is a cultural thing. <laughs> right. You know, to club a seal. Yeah. Well, it's again food, eat. right? And they use seals for a lot of different things. They yeah. use the fat. I think I'm pretty sure seals, well, definitely whales. They use the whale oil as like, uh, you know, for lighting and yeah. heating and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about seals. They do have a lot of the same fat, they sm- do. smaller amounts of it. Yeah. 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 Aboriginal Australians used them to club, of course, kangaroos. What of else course. is going to club in, in Australia? <laughs> and as throwing sticks and boomerangs. Yeah, which we talked about yeah. boomerangs not too long ago, too, yeah. and how they use them probably as clubs sometimes. So, right. Yeah. People in the northwestern United States and southwestern Canada. So that whole Pacific Northwest area for these mm-hmm. those living in the U.S. Uh, used them to club beavers, bears, mm-hmm. which sounds pretty bold. That deer, is quite bold. <laughs> yeah, and other marine animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, people all over the world, basically what he came to is people were using these not only as weapons, but to survive. Mm-hmm. As right? the, Close the combat. finish him piece yeah. of. <laughs> finish them. <laughs> you know, when you're hunting, sometimes you got to get in there and, and finish it off. So, right. Yeah. The What the author's analysis of those studies that he looked at told him was that while they were used for, you know, animals and things like that, Mm -hmm. 80% of the observed societies used them for interpersonal violence. So as a weapon. So, yeah. yeah, So they're human on human violence then more often than anything else, which makes sense. (laughs) I know. Most people, you know, when the arrows and spears were invented, the clubs became a little less used. Uh And... Because you could you could hit stuff from a distance and stay safe, mm-hmm. but they probably still do use the clubs when they got up close, like we said. Yeah, you know, for finish sure. them off. So. Also, I I think that when you're talking about the combat thing, you know, where p- mm-hmm. humans are fighting humans, you end up in close quarters very quickly. Yeah, and you need something other than an arrow or a spear. You like those are only useful mm-hmm. in the very beginnings, and then you're down to whatever you've got in your hands. So yeah, that makes sense again. Yeah. Killing with a club was also seen as mighty and honorable by many societies because of the difficulty and bravery involved. Mm. So some people would still, you know, come down to that because it makes them look tough. And that's coming from the ethnographies, I yes. assume, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now these clubs that we're talking about, it's not just a shaped stick necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of the observed societies, they were often very sophisticated and consisted of special shapes, could have been decorated, made of more than just one wood, mm-hmm. one type of wood, so like a composite, mm-hmm. and, and used a, with a very choice piece of wood, mm-hmm. like per, not only just the species, but also the shape. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of big trees like redwoods and things up in the Pacific Northwest where oh, yeah. you can see you know these, these knobbies on the roots and stuff. Man, you get one of those roots that kind of tapers down to the end, yeah. and it's got one of those nodules on it. I mean, that's like a natural, you know, bash yourself in the skull club right there. Right, right. So. Yeah. The pictures in the article are really, really neat. There's some really artistic and beautiful clubs that are in there and they have what looks like like writing on them. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite writing, but some kind of like hieroglyphic type of thing. And like there's just some really beautiful examples. They they were a form of art in some way, too. Yeah. So it turns out that what this study's found is that clubs have probably been used by Homo sapiens, the species Homo sapien, and probably some of the adjacent species as well, and possibly even back to Australopithecines mm-hmm. and, you know, all the way back, maybe for as long as primates have been around, mm-hmm. they've been using clubs. Yep. You know, the further you get down in time, the more intricate these things could have gotten, the mm-hmm. more shaped they could have gotten, you know, the, a little more intention was put to them. Yep. I mean, they couldn't really shape the clubs until they had a way to shape the clubs. Right. So you that kind of means stone tools. You need a tool for that, for right. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway... That's pretty cool. He set out to prove the video game right. and Well, at least one <laughs> small component of it. Yeah. It didn't really touch on animal skins. Maybe that's for the next research project right, as right. clothing. <laughs> 
Well, one thing that our modern hunter-gatherer societies might find difficult to deal with, even if they do have a bunch of clubs, is climate change. <laughs> because that affects everybody. <laughs> Let's talk about that on the other side. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 212 of the Archaeology Show. And now, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about climate change. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Not really. Climate though. temperatures. Right. What they were like in the past. And how they changed. Yes. Or maybe <laughs> didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So what we're talking about here is an article that came out in phys.org called A Reconstruction of Prehistoric Temperatures for Some of the Oldest Archaeological Sites in North America. And it is based on a paper that was that was published in Science Direct. And it's an open source paper. So we will have links to both the article and the paper in our show notes. Yep. But the the gist of it is that climate obviously has always been thought to be one of the largest drivers of like human migration into North America mm-hmm. from Siberia into Alaska and then down into North America and all the way down from there. Right. And during the last glacial maximum though, when when people were beginning to move in, you know, much of northern North America was covered in ice sheets and glaciers and mm-hmm. there was only a couple paths really to get down into interior North America. Yeah, that being said, though, we do have sites in Alaska mm-hmm. that date to the Paleolithic. So, yeah. you know, right at the right at the ragged edge of the Ice Age there, yeah. you know, when it's really not super great. Yeah. Or at least we think it is. That's what we were thinking, yeah. right? Um, like, yeah, but, but we know that they lived there because we have the sites. Yeah, it's like, so they were braving the cold, I guess. It was mm-hmm. worth it to be there to, you know, m- keep moving south, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's always nice to have actual evidence. So in this study... The researchers are basically trying to reconstruct the past climate of Paleolithic sites, and they chose a group of sites specifically in Alaska's Tanana Valley area. So this valley in particular was never fully glaciated during the last glacial maximum, so it might have been more hospitable to humans, yeah. and that's probably why we have more sites there, too. There's right. there's uh, six of them that they chose to do this study at. Yeah, and people didn't travel back then just like we do, you know, crossing several states in your car just trying to go to, you know, grandma's for the holidays. Right. Right. They traveled extremely slowly, usually following food, mm-hmm. you know, or escaping situations. Yep. Right. You know, so they could have started that way. But then they're following migrations. They're following food mm-hmm. and they're just, you know, they're just pushing on. They have no reason to stay one place over another. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you go where the food is and, yep. and why not just keep moving and, and look around? Yeah. So, but it takes thousands of years to do that. It does. And, and we had always assumed that maybe they were trying to escape the the cold weather too like they're mm-hmm. pushing south for for that reason as well yeah well there are sites in this area that date back at least fourteen thousand years mm-hmm. and we know that through other dating methods that, yeah that they definitely date to that old yep there's so, carbon dating and all that to to say right. what the ages of these sites are and one that one thing that helps us with any site of really any age is to really understand what the environment was like at the time that we're looking at mm-hmm. because that tells us what kind of animals could have lived there mm-hmm. what the you know daily temperatures could have been like what the winter temperatures could have been like vegetation, you know? yeah, vegetation. like all the things that would have contributed to a hunter-gatherer yeah. society 
existing and thriving. Yeah. What kind of like clothes and coverings will they need to have, you know, just to survive a night? Yeah, totally. So. So in the past, we've used changes in vegetation and pollen to sort of catalog the broad changes across an area. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that type of study is that it's not very precise. You right. get like colder versus warmer from the data, but you don't get that quantitative, like exact temperature type of information. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Jennifer Kielhofer is a paleoclimatologist at DRI and she's the lead author on the study. She and her team wanted to find a more precise temperature history for the area of in the Tanana River Valley in Alaska. Yeah, for that, they used six sites along the Tanana River, and that's located on the interior of Alaska, southeast of Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used soil samples from those sites to actually reconstruct the paleoclimate using a new technique called this is weird, BRGDGT, and the BR is lowercase, the mm-hmm. GDGT is uppercase, paleothermometry. Yeah, and we'll get into what that is exactly in just a second here. Paleothermometry itself uses the temperature records stored in preserved bacteria to build the climate profile of an area. Mm-hmm. And that was like super confusing to me, actually. So I had to like deep dive that a little bit to find out exactly <laughs> what it is. But BRGDGTs are membrane spanning lipids that alter their cellular membranes in response to changing environmental conditions. And then you can track these changes and use that to construct the precise temperature profile of an area that has these these little bacteria in the soil. Yeah. Basically, that's how that works. Yeah. In this case, with the samples they found, the mean air temperature in the valley was over the 14,000 year period was above freezing. Yeah. Uh, with a precision of 2.8 degrees Celsius, which is somewhere around probably six to eight degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. 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 So... Above freezing is not what you would expect to see in Alaska during yeah. the last glacial maximums and in places where it's supposed to be like super cold. Mm-hmm. Now, we know it wasn't fully glaciated, but that doesn't mean it's not cold up there. But to have a mean that, you know, is above freezing is an interesting piece of information that we didn't have before. Yeah. And the other reason this is surprising, because in the rest of the world, there were pretty big swings in temperature during the Younger Dryas and the, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but the bowling Elorod time period. Mm-hmm. But this area was sort of buffered from those swings for whatever reason. Yeah. Which, again, is probably yeah. why there are people here. Yeah. Like they naturally found these places that were, it was a valley, it was by a river, and it just is buffered from these bigger swings in temperature mm-hmm. that were happening in other places around the world. And it meant that you know, they could survive and thrive there and eventually keep pushing south. But at least while they were living there, it wasn't this like terrible, you know, covered in ice and snow situation that you might think it was. And the article mentions that we still don't know why they left. But does that indicate I'm I'm just kind of wondering, theoretically, does that indicate that that we have a, a certain time period where there are sites and then thousands of years where there's nothing indicating people actually did left? Or do we have 14,000 years of history there indicating, well, people have either passed through there a lot or maybe some stuck around right. and they kept coming back? You know, I, I really don't know what the archaeological record looks like there. Yeah, that actually is an interesting thing. It, sh- it would be a good like next step to sort of see what this actually means. Were we fully occupying this area, you know, forever from there on out? Or yeah. was it a move on and leave it behind? I, I don't really know. They they did not say in this article. Yeah. So. 
Well, the last thing I wanted to leave, which I thought was just kind of like the perfect ending, is the actual final sentence from the actual paper itself. And I quote, based on our BRGDGT record, deglacial to Holocene temperature fluctuations were unlikely significant enough to impact human populations in the interior, although relatively warm deglacial temperatures may have initially attracted megafauna and humans to this mm. region. Yeah. So basically unpacking that is the the temperature fluctuations weren't crazy big or causing mm-hmm. problems. But it was relatively warm here, comparatively speaking. Yeah. So human and megafauna and other animals and vegetation and everything that looks for warmer temperatures might have been attracted to this area for that reason. So Yeah, I mean, humans follow the animals and the animals are following either other animals and or vegetation. Mm-hmm. Or and, water. Or water. And it's, right? a, it's a river. So you, yeah. all of those things are happening there. And- yeah. And if there's a... You know, an area where they're living, where, you know, it's seasonal and stuff starts to realistically dry up in the fall. Well, they're going to move. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're always chasing 70 like some RVers, right? <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're looking for those temperatures and those places where they can consistently eat fine food if they're not cold adapted. Obviously, mm-hmm. we have species that are cold adapted. They mm-hmm. they can live off very little during the winter time. They live in the snow. Doesn't matter to them. But, you know, not every animal is, is like that and they need to migrate for yep. seasonal reasons. But if they don't need to leave, then why would they? Yeah, why would they, right? Yeah. I just, that was the most interesting thing about this article is that those fluctuations that Mm -hmm. you're always told happened with the glacial maximums and stuff like that just might not have affected everywhere equally. Right. Which gave opportunity to both animals and humans alike to, you know, to live, to thrive. I'm guessing (laughs) one of the reasons they either pushed out of that area or just continued to migrate south into North America was because as the glaciers did start to recede, you know, these temperatures became a little more favorable Mm -hmm. in those areas that previously realistically didn't have them or were covered in glaciers. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, so they were able to move where they weren't able to move before. Yeah. Now, before you write a nasty email to me right now saying that humans traveled along the coast following (laughs) uh, kelp fields and things like that, that is another theory. It is another one. And some people could have done that. Some people didn't, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, the ice-free corridor that opened up between the massive glaciers that were on the east and west sides of the North American continent, mm-hmm. in, basically in Canada and the mm-hmm. northern United States, is one place where we have found sites, and we do know that people utilize that. It was a path, right. for sure. But yeah. it doesn't mean it's the only one. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just talking about the people that didn't even get to that point yeah. and possibly didn't even follow the water around. You no, know, they followed the river water rather than yeah, well, coastal water, you know? because oh, there they did. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that's it for this time. It's fun to get back to news stories after a month off. I know. With our paleoanthropology series. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have more news stories next week, too, because a yeah. lot has happened, it seems like, in the last month. So there's well, more getting, fun stuff. We're getting into archaeology season, so they got to get their papers written and published so they can go out and so dig the, up Yeah, some so they can get the funding to yeah. go out and do more work. <laughs> totally. But some, some of the big, the big stories, you know, as we're getting into the season, they have press releases. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping to talk about some of that stuff, because that's where the a lot of the misconception comes in is oh, yeah. those initial interpretations of things by the media yes so. yeah they always want the sensational reason for a story rather than what is likely the right. more boring reason <laughs> right yeah all right it's time for tacos we'll see you bye thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com find us on facebook instagram and twitter at arcpodnet 
Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Come.